From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Well, as you probably know, we've been talking to elected leaders about the state of the state, the governor's state of the state address in early January, followed by her budget address in which she laid out what she would like to accomplish and and some of the mechanisms that she would use to pay for those things. And now, as it always happens, it's up to the legislature to debate and to kind of take some of these priorities to Albany to talk about where this goes. And in the next couple of months, we're going to see a lot happen here. We've been inviting members of the New York State Assembly, the State Senate, to join us to talk about what they would like to prioritize, how they'd like to pay for it, what they think is still uh, still in front of the state to get done this year. And State Senator Jeremy Cooney from District Number 56 is my guest in studio today. Senator Cooney, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Evan. Um, it, was there a singular headline that stood out from the governor's state of the state in the budget address, either a, I'm glad we're going in this direction, or I can't believe the governor just said this to you? I, I would say confidence is the word that comes to mind. I felt that the governor was confident when she delivered her remarks. I felt that she really had a masterful understanding of what she wanted to do and what she couldn't do with the Senate finance, I'm sorry, the state finances. Um, this was a different type of budget address than she has done previously in the sense that I felt like she was overwhelmed kind of in the first situation when she inherited the role and now she's kind of got her feet underneath her. And so she had a clear direction about what kind of industries she wanted to invest in and some of the opportunities to do things differently than past administrations. But the key takeaway for me, of course, listening and sitting there on the floor of the state assembly uh, was to say, there's some good wins for Rochester here. And, um, you know, she talked a little bit about them when she came to Rochester yesterday to do kind of a after budget talk, if you will. Uh, but uh, I, I think that there's some good wins for us. And so now it's about making sure that we can lock those down in the final enacted budget uh, coming up this spring. What's an example of a win for Rochester? Well, you know, you know, we've been working on anti-poverty for years in this community. Um, but one of the challenges that we have seen is that uh we, we kind of start and stop different programs or initiatives, uh, but a $25 million commitment to address concentrated poverty in the city of Rochester is really a step in the right direction. Three out of the top five poorest zip codes in the state of New York are in the city of Rochester. And so she allocated, or at least in her proposed budget, she has allocated $50 million for anti-poverty work, uh, but half of that noticeably, is coming to the city of Rochester. Now, she didn't dictate on how that money would be spent. I think we all have our ideas on how we can best utilize um, those resources. But the key for me is recognition that we have a poverty crisis in Rochester, that we have a generational poverty issue, that we have a concentration of poverty issue, and most importantly, in my book, a child poverty issue with about 48% of our children in the city living below the federal poverty line. Uh, to state what I think would be obvious to most listeners, although we try not to do too much math on this program, Senator, <laughs> but $25 million would not be enough for a UBI program. So absent that, if you were in control of that $25 million, how does it get spent? Well, one of the things that I have focused on in terms of uh, the time that I have served in elected office is who gets the money that comes down from the state? And I think that we have to take a look at who are the social innovators today in Rochester doing things differently or focusing on new techniques and programs and practices that impact the level of poverty that we have today. So giving money to the same organizations year after year after year hasn't fixed the problem. 
We haven't uh, gotten to some of the root causes of, of poverty. And so, you know, what I would be interested in doing is finding out who are those individuals and organizations that are doing things a little bit differently. And I, I know you've had some of these folks on Connections over the years, uh, but folks like Beatrice LeBron, who has reinvigorated the Father Tracy Center on North Clinton Avenue, um, who is reapproaching how services are given to those who just walk in off the street and connecting them to uh, other organizations and resources um, to help them improve where their situation may be. Um, that's a great example of an organization that hasn't received lots of state dollars in the past, but could do something really interesting. I'm working on um, a concept with uh, Beatrice LeBron, the executive director, uh, on how we get hygiene supplies to individuals. So not just having to wait for someone to come off the street into their offices, but what if we went out into the community to make sure that we are living lives of dignity uh, and making sure that we're delivering uh, services to people where they're most comfortable? So th those are the conversations. Mobile units, that maybe? Mobile units could be, for, for example, in that case. But the idea of getting out of our silos and bringing services to people where they are and to meet them in a way that they feel most comfortable is, is something that's very interesting to me. I spent a recent afternoon at the Father Tracy Advocacy mm. Center. And I'm trying to remember, were they talking about mobile showers? Yeah, like they've that? talked about mobile okay. shower units. I mean, that's something that has been tried actually in California. Now, they have a more temperate climate uh, than, yeah, yeah. than we do, but it doesn't mean that that, that model couldn't work in some uh, way here in Rochester. Again, the idea of bringing services to people uh, and not waiting for them to come to us is something that I'm really interested in. So whether you're in a government agency, such as the, the county's uh, social services department, or whether you're a not-for-profit organization that has credible relationships in the community, um, those, are, those are opportunities for us to take that $25 million and really be innovative with how those dollars are spent. And if we can prove models and uh, you know, see that this is working or making a difference, then we could hopefully replicate and fund with existing resources in the future. Because we're not always going to have these large sums of money uh, being infused into our community. Sure. Um, and, you know, Senator Cooney, you've worked in government at uh, a lot of different levels. And, um, I, you know, part of what you're describing is uh, alleviating and addressing poverty in its most acute form as it exists now. Another question becomes, what is it that is going to create the kind of conditions where people don't end up or fewer people end up in that situation in the first place? Some of that is just a, a stronger economy, a bigger job base. Where where do you see the future, the strongest future of the economic job base here? What does that look like right now? What's growing? Well, if you look at what's happening across the state, there are industries that we are investing in that are actually reinvesting back into communities. And obviously, in central New York, uh, in the Syracuse area where we're seeing Micron now plant its roots, there are some real opportunities for job creation, certainly in Syracuse, but even coming to Rochester and Buffalo that will result from that. Last, yesterday, uh, Senator Schumer and the governor were up in Malta, uh, right, kind of in the Saratoga County area, announcing an expansion of Global Foundries, another semiconductor industry. And so what's interesting to me is, as someone who was raised in upstate New York, very interested in helping to attract talent or keep talent, workforce talent that is, here in upstate New York is, can these jobs be actually accessed by people who live in Rochester or Syracuse or Buffalo today? And 
one of the barriers to that not only is educational training and skill set training, but it's also transportation. How do we get people who live in the inner city here in Rochester out to some of these larger type manufacturing facilities that aren't located in downtown sectors, but rather more rural areas of the state? And I think we have to be intentional about transportation um, and make sure that if we really want to make these inclusive job creation opportunities, we have to figure out a way to get people there. I'm going to confess something here, Senator, and this may be its whole separate program that needs to happen. But when you talk about semiconductor industry, mm. I'm not fully sure what that I know that Taiwan dominates with mm-hmm. semiconductors and chips. Um, and we frankly have heard really crass talk during the presidential primaries from people like Vivek Ramaswamy about whether to protect Taiwan based on <laughs> how many semiconductors we can make versus what they can make. Um but what I don't know is how robust the American production of semiconductors has become, if the state could be a part of that, um, and really what we're talking about there. Yeah, Can you add I, just a little bit there? Sure, sure. Well, I'll leave, I'll leave it to my friends at you know, RIT and others who yeah, that'll are be a far whole more technically yeah, sure. advanced than I am. But um, you know, a long, long story short is, and I think we best experienced this um, during the pandemic when there was all, you walk into those car dealerships and right there were no cars on the floor because there was a chip that was missing and we couldn't produce it domestically. It was being produced often uh, uh, in Southeast Asia and recognizing that this became a national security issue of how do we create these very, 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 very small chips that go into phones, into vehicles, into computers, into uh, any sort of high-tech device that we now rely on as consumers uh, and as businesses. And we recognized, you know, we've kind of outsourced all of that because of labor costs, et cetera, but there's a real need to control that better domestically. So there are some big players like Intel, Micron, obviously, mm-hmm. um, who have made the decision that they want to bring those jobs back onshore, you know, into the United States. And then there was kind of this large national competition of which state would win, right? So it kind of brings back memories about the Amazon competition, yeah. right? You know, where's going to be? I've tried to forget that. that? Well, I, I cannot forget that. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's where uh, the majority leader of the United States Senate, Chuck Schumer, and the Biden administration work together to create what was called the Chips and Science Act at the federal level, which would economically incentivize these companies to come back. What was interesting in New York State specifically, and why I think we were largely successful with getting Micron uh, to be in central New York, is that we had a what we called a green chips program that basically complemented the federal dollar. So there was an additional state financial package which helped bring those commitments and jobs to central New York. And by the way, I was very pleased to carry that legislation as the prime bill sponsor in the state Senate. So when we passed the Green Chips Bill, actually before the federal government, before the Congress passed the Chips and Science Act, those two worked together to help us create uh, the, the chip uh, manufacturing facility that's coming to Syracuse. And this is massive. I mean, the, the physical structure. Micron yeah, Micron. Yeah. The physical structure of the factory is massive, and the number of people needed to do advanced manufacturing is, is large. So, um, you know, some industries we talk about bringing to New York don't actually have a lot of jobs attached to it. They're, they may be big dollar amounts. Uh, this is an industry that has growth. And by the way, all the supply chain companies, so we talked about uh, in Rochester, uh, the Rochester region in Batavia, at the stamp facility, uh, 
um, this company called Edwards Vacuums. So I'm imagining, you know, a vacuum cleaner, right? No, 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 no. It's a very tiny, tiny, tiny little air device that goes on these chips. I mean, it feels like you're like building a Lego set or something, but it goes on these chips. And that's, uh, it's a British company, but they've chosen to locate in Batavia in Western New York because they are a major supplier to Micron and they want to be closer to them and be able to have a closer vendor relationship. So that's just the beginning of what I think will be a very robust manufacturing environment in upstate New York from Saratoga Springs to Buffalo and Rochester, of course, being right in the middle of it to take advantage of these jobs. But the key is for people who have been uh, left behind in the economy, who maybe don't have a two- or four-year college degree. Uh, maybe they started, but then they stopped. Um, maybe they're working a low-wage job. Uh, are these opportunities available and accessible to them? And if they are, there's an intention by the company to do some hiring from inner cities, Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, Albany, then how do we get people to the plants? And that's where I think we need to do a little bit more work is to create transportation systems in upstate New York that meet that demand. Um, it's one thing to say, yeah, we have all these jobs posted. It's another thing to actually get the people who need those jobs into them. Talking to State Senator Jeremy Cooney from District Number 56. And let me grab a phone call from Andrew in Arundacoy who wanted to weigh in. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead. Oh, hey, you guys. Yeah, what are you talking about? Mo You're going to bring free stuff mobily now to people? Are we, like, made out of money around here? I don't get it. I mean, really, that's what you want to do? You wouldn't want to bother the poor people to go down and get their free stuff on their own. They, I mean, that would be asking way too much. What are you going to do, show up at their door? I mean, what are you talking about? I don't get it. And where are the 17,000 photonics jobs that Louise Slaughter promised? Remember how she said it was already a done deal in her campaign ads? You guys don't know how to do anything. Dignity comes from work, not from being a recipient of mobile freebies. All right. So there's a lot. Let me work backwards there. Let's start with the photonics point. And, and I, I hear in Andrew's call a little bit of the, uh, the concern that when people hear about Micron, they think, well, you know, mm -hmm. I thought we were going to get more out of photonics. And, and again, I'm not saying there is no photonics industry. I'm saying it felt like a pretty big set of promises early on. Uh, from Vice President Biden on down uh, at the time, Vice President Biden. Mm -hmm. So let's start with photonics, and then we'll work back to the other. Side. Yeah, no, that's a fair a fair question, and and Andrew's point is right. But what about all these jobs that we heard about coming? Actually, I was a young staffer at that photonics announcement when then you Vice were there President. I was there in yeah. the uh, in the room, uh, and there was a lot of excitement and a lot of hope. Um, I think the difference between uh, photonics and the semiconductor industry is that the semiconductor industry is well established. There is opportunity in photonics, and Rochester is uniquely positioned to develop the technologies and have some of the skill sets behind that. But the size of the industry is, uh, from uh, semiconductors as compared to photonics um, are, are very different points, right? We know that these chips are already being produced. They're already in production. They're already being used. The demand for them is already high. The technology around photonics is still really being developed. Um, so there is probably a longer-term play there. Um, so maybe we'll get to that 17,000 jobs, Andrew. I don't know. Would you call it a bust so far? I don't think it's a bust because we've got hardworking people actually right down the street here um, who are doing that work right and research. Right up Lake Avenue. Yep, right on Lake Avenue, up by the uh, the old uh, 
Kodak plant facility over by the Eastman Business Park. Uh, but, you know, again, I think that that's kind of further down the line. I can tell you that in terms of Micron or in terms of the other semiconductor companies like Global Foundries, they're already here. They're already operating. They're already hiring. Um, and, and in fact, time can't wait. They're, they're building housing and, and, and trying to find building schools literally around the Syracuse area because they need a lot of people to, to get to work. And that's probably in the next three to five years. That's not, you know, some pie in the sky, 20 years down the line, we'll see what happens. There's a real demand for that type right now. Now, he, he's referencing also what you've proposed doing for organizations like the Father Tracy Advocacy Center, uh, mobile units to, to reach people who literally need help with hygiene and, um, and and basic daily needs. And Andrew says it sounds like we're made of money. He's, he's maligning people in poverty for not being able to go get those services themselves. What do you think? Well, you know, we have a lot of great service providers in the greater Rochester area, uh, whether they're healthcare providers or whether they're mental health providers or whether they're uh, educational workforce development, workforce training providers. The key is how do we better connect the dots, right? So we've got a lot of people who don't who don't even know that we have these opportunities uh, in front of them uh, because they're focused on getting food on the table for their families, right? They're, maybe they have one or two jobs or, you know, we, we often call them the working poor, but this is the face of Rochester. Um, and so you got a lot of these hardworking families who don't know that there are opportunities for them. They don't have time if they're working two or three jobs and they're trying to get their kid on and off the bus and they're trying to make sure that their child has the services and tutoring resources that are available to them and get them to their practices and pediatric appointments. They don't have time to just go and look at a, a program that may be all the way across the city and because of our transportation system, which I want to come back to, um, might take them half an hour, 45 minutes to go to both ways. Right. And so if we brought these professionals and these service providers into neighborhoods, dense neighborhoods, um, we could actually bring those services. We're not giving anything away. We're just better serving the people who need those assistance and need that help. So if we're talking about a shower vehicle, right, that's talking about bringing dignity to our uh, chronically homeless population to our most vulnerable individuals. Uh, but what we could also be talking about something wonderful like bookmobiles, right? I grew up in Rochester. We had a bookmobile that hasn't been on the road for a number of years. We're going to put that back on the road, right? Bringing literacy into our neighborhoods. We have wonderful branch libraries, but not everyone can get to the branch library because they may not have childcare, right? So we're just trying to better utilize and direct the energies of not not-for-profits and government services in a way that actually meets the need. I would also just say to Andrew, you know, everyone can decide on their own if they think certain expenditures or ideas are the right use of resources, that, that, of course. But, um, you know, having spent time at the Father Tracy Advocacy Center, as we recently did, and getting to know some of the people who work there, some of the people who work there used to need services there. Some of the people uh, who are there most days are known by the first name, know all the staff members, and have been dealing with really difficult issues, addiction, homelessness, um, a lot of trauma and abuse. And what I saw there was just a real human effort, just humanity, outreach in a way that doesn't take dignity away from people. And um, again, you can decide what you think is appropriate. I'm just telling you what I saw.
Can, can I just take a personal point yeah. of privilege here? Yeah. I love this country, and I'm so proud uh, to be an American citizen. Uh, I came from a challenge start. I was born in an orphanage in Calcutta, India. And if I had not been adopted by a wonderful single mother here in the city of Rochester, a proud Rochesterian, uh, I may not be alive today because there is no social safety net in high-poverty nations like India, right? When you're 18, you're on the street. And if you're on the street, there's no you know, shelters, there's no uh, food pantries, um, there's no Father Tracy Center to walk into and have someone call you by their first name, right? So we are so blessed in this country to have uh, generosity of, of organizations and individuals who want to help people um, live a better life, live a life of dignity. That's what makes this country so great, and I'm so proud to support that. I think Andrew's also asking, well, what's, where's the personal responsibility component for those individuals? But I don't hear you or people at the center saying that personal responsibility is not part of this, right? We all are responsible for learning about opportunities and doing what's best and responsible for us to put food on our table or take care of our loved ones. No one's denying that whatsoever. But, you know, we as whether you're an elected official and you're working at a level of government at the state or local level, or county level, you know, we're responsible for providing services uh, to people in need. And we all, by the way, might need those services at some point in our life. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting in this studio in the shadow of Kodak. There were a lot of people, working people, working class families, um, who, who all, of a sudden, all of a sudden found themselves unemployed in the mid-90s. And there were services available to them. And many of those individuals were able to, to weather that storm, get retrained, get a new job, and be able to continue to be productive members of our community. That's a good thing. That's what that's the blessing of of having a government that works for the people. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for helping uh, people in need or finding creative solutions uh, to better uh, help families, um, you know, get to where they need to to be and to be able to provide for the next generation of Rochesterians. I'm going to come back to transit and transportation in a moment. I know that's important to you. And and that, of course, is connected to everything that we've been talking about with State Senator Jeremy Cooney on this program today. But part and parcel with this question of what a responsibility of a government is, what a, what a government can afford to do, what a government should do, is a debate about, in this particular case, the governor talking about $2.4 billion for migrant services. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, Republican uh, Marjorie Burns from the State Assembly was on this program last week, and she said that... Um, uh, that if it were up to her, the number for migrant services in this budget would be zero, and that all that money would go to already existing New Yorkers, that she would support all people who want to come here and become law-abiding citizens and taxpayers if they do it through legal means, mm -hmm. but we cannot incentivize continuing immigration that is undocumented or against existing laws. So she said the number would be zero, not $2.4 billion as proposed. Um, so let's talk about what you want to see there. What what is a what's a good is there a good number? Is there a good approach to this? What do you see? Well, what a, a better approach would be is to have a stronger relationship with our federal partners. We need the Congress to allocate dollars to support the influx of asylum seekers coming to our country. Um, to be able to you know turn our back on these individuals who are coming from very challenged and difficult 
places in our world uh, and looking for the American dream here and are trying their best. I mean, this is not a group of people who just casually walked across the border, right? They're, they even make it to our borders on the southern side or the northern side. Um, they've come from a very challenged background. And um, we have to have a federal solution for that. It's not fair uh, to put it all on the city of New York or the city of Rochester or the county of Monroe uh, or New York State. Um, so in an ideal situation, I would see more resources coming from the Congress, from the Biden administration to New York State to offset that, that large number. Um, you know, the idea that we can just, you know, put folks on a bus and send them someplace else. Well, that's what they did in Texas. Um, you know, that's one solution, I guess. Uh, but that doesn't help us now. By the way, we also have a crisis in terms of our labor. If you talk to any company uh, in, in, and certainly in Rochester or across New York State, they're looking for people to get to work. Uh, and so here's a group of people who do want to work. So let's empower them to do that. The last caller talked about, you know, helping people, uh, you know, through mobile services. Um, I'd like to help people get trained um, to to make sure they can access these jobs and give them the work permits so that they can do that. I know Congressman Morelli has called uh, for that. That's something I would support as well. I know Governor Hochul has pushed the White House uh, to expedite the process for getting these people uh, off the street and into jobs where there are there are jobs available. Talking to State Senator Jeremy Cooney. Um, so before we move off that, just are you, are you comfortable with $2.4 billion right now in this budget for that? Well, we're going to have that conversation about how that money is going to be spent. You know, it's I don't have a magical number. I have a I have a idea of how we can actually empower individuals uh, to be here safely, to follow our rules, and to you know be become productive members of our society. You know, we haven't seen the number of uh, migrant asylum seekers in Rochester that New York City certainly has seen. Um, I have gone down and toured. Uh, some of the hotels uh, where yeah. these asylum seekers are staying. Uh, most of the asylum seekers are women and children. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I look at this from a humanistic lens of how do we help people become productive members of our society? And I just don't think turning our back on them or putting them on a bus to another state is the right thing to do. On a separate program soon, we're going to talk to, I, I hope we can talk to Daisy Ruiz Marine from Ibero, who I had a chance to spend some time with on Sunday. Um, the number from Ibero is since October, there are 48 migrant families here in Rochester now that have relocated to Rochester since October. 48 is the number. As this state senator says, most are women and children, and almost all of them across the southern border. A lot of the children are dealing with trauma from that journey, that trip. And one of the big challenges is how long it takes to get work permits and mm -hmm. some of the system systemic issues. So we're going to have a separate conversation on that coming up with the people who are literally working with those folks every day. But it's not an abstraction. It's a it's a real issue. They expect to have roughly 200 over the next year, 200 families. Mm -hmm. So that that's the number. I, to the senator's point, it's not thousands or tens of thousands like New York City mm -hmm. or other cities are facing, but it's it's a real issue. So. Um, so that's something that we'll, we'll cover more as we go on. Now, on the subject of transportation, you know, the senator's list of topics included high-speed rail. And I have, a big, <laughs> I have a big bias here, so I'll put my bias on the table. Whenever I am fortunate enough, and I know it's fortunate to be able to travel to places like Europe, and you get on high-speed rail, it takes about an hour before you to be 
fully transformed into going, what are we doing here? <laughs> why, why are we not doing this? But over 20 years in Rochester, watching both the debate here that was often led by people like the late Congresswoman Slaughter or looking at California that has started and stopped and often cites rising costs. I don't I don't know, Senator. I mean, as someone who loves high speed rail when I go elsewhere, I also hear people in elected positions of power say too expensive, too expensive, too expensive. What do we see? I started working on high-speed rail 20 years ago when as a young staff person for uh, the late Congresswoman Slaughter, who really was a visionary when it came to uh, mass transit outside of New York City. Um, we know that high-speed rail, and let's define that, usually 110 to 125 miles per hour or more, um, is something that we're seeing in other states, Florida, California are two that have a private, they have Brightline. Florida. Uh, does that. Yeah, Florida's good, investing in high does speed Does Governor rail. DeSantis know that? <laughs> well, you know, he's been he's been out of the state for a while, so we have to see if what's on his agenda. <laughs> I have to but, read more about that, but go ahead. <laughs> but, but here's the deal. They're accessing federal dollars who, you know, the, the U.S. Department of Transportation is investing billions of dollars into high speed rail. Why are they doing it? Well, one, it works. Other countries have already done it for years. Um, it also hits environmental goals, right? Making sure that there are less vehicles on freeways and throughways, right? Um, in terms of reducing our carbon offput. Uh, and it's convenient, and that's really what the workforce is moving towards. Um, selfishly for Rochester, I think we have a unique opportunity to look at high-speed rail in the context of Toronto. We are just a few hours away by car uh, from Toronto, Toronto that has a metropolitan area of about 6.3 million people. It's bigger than Chicago. And can you imagine if we connected Toronto to New York City through high-speed rail? We would be able to get people from one economic hub to another and connect them all along the Northeast Corridor for Amtrak. But what would happen, I wrote this in a, an op-ed piece in the, in the Times Union uh, earlier this week, is it would create what I call a 21st century Erie Canal effect. All of these upstate throughway cities, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, down through the Hudson Valley to New York City would be lifted up. Right, because we'll be able to get people from even just from Buffalo to Syracuse much faster. And so now you can have a real conversation about remote work and create opportunities for people to loc to be lived outside of these cities and be able to create uh, more population growth uh, across upstate New York. So I think uh, you know the people you know talk about the cost, and that's real. And, and so we had a hearing on passenger rail. It was a, a, a legislative hearing on passenger rail a couple of weeks ago. And what became increasingly unsatisfying to me as a policymaker is that we as a state have adopted what we call the 90B plan, B as in boy. And uh, this would invest in speeding up rail, not high-speed rail, but increasing the miles per hour um, for transit uh, west of Albany, so uh, you know the the Mohawk Valley through Western New York, uh, and then from uh, Albany down through the Hudson Valley to New York City. That plan takes 25 years to implement. And I said to uh, one of the DOT commissioners or, or officials, I said, "We're going to have flying cars by then. <laughs> I mean, we're missing the boat here. Um, in fact, there won't be any construction west of Albany for 15 years." 
That's unacceptable. Under that plan. Under that plan. That's unacceptable. Now, the challenge is, and you know, I, I could talk about transit all day long, so I, I'll be respectful of time, but the challenge is west of Albany, so in our neck of the woods here in the greater Rochester area, we actually share the tracks with CSX. That's it's commercial freight. On, on tracks. They don't do that down below Albany. So we have to build new tracks uh, so that we can have that dedicated rail service to go faster than we currently can go. Um, so we're going like, you know, that 85, 90 miles per hour. We need to speed that up. Um, so it's a step in the right on direction. An Amtrak train? Correct. On that, and that's if they're not stuck behind a freight train. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So we need to create that third or fourth track. That's possible and doable. And if we don't build now, uh, we're not going to be able to access these federal dollars that are really on the table. So uh, I'd like us to see us become more aggressive on this. This is possible. We just have to really kind of set that goal and commit to it. All right, so make sure I understand part of how the dominoes would fall here. What you're really looking for is a big federal investment, which you say is available mm-hmm. if the state steps up and adds infrastructure. That's right. What's the price tag for that? Oh, well, it depends on uh, how fast you want to go, what type of train set you want to buy. But with, by the way, they're made in by Alstom right here in you know in the Hornell area. So um, these are local jobs that would <laughs> we'd benefit from. Uh, but it depends on um, you know the the technology that we're looking to invest in. I say we don't we don't have to put the bullet train here, right? But but can we get at least get um, something faster than we currently have. Uh, for me, um, there's been a couple different designs in terms of where the tracks would actually go. We could put a third or fourth track along the existing Amtrak route, or we could think differently. Maybe it cuts up through uh, the southern tier, right? Goes through Binghamton and kind of goes at an angle and gets over to the Buffalo Niagara area, right? Uh, obviously, I want Rochester to, to benefit from this, but you know, those are the conversations that we should be having as transit advocates, as government partners, um, so that we're thinking much more realistically about moving people across the state in a different way. I think there's some other really exciting technology enhancements outside of high-speed rail that we could be exploring that other states are exploring, such as VTOLs. Have you heard about that, Evan? Mm-mm. So it's vertical takeoff and landing vehicle uh, aircrafts. Now, the FAA is still looking at this on the federal level, but this is all electric. Think of it like all electric high-speed helicopters. It sounds like something out of the Jetsons or something, but this technology already exists. Boeing is working on it right now. New York City is preparing for this technology. What if we were able to move people from Rochester to Syracuse to Albany in a very quick way without any carbon offset? I mean, that that is huge. That is like, So we should be thinking about embracing mass transit and, and, and forms of technology to create the upstate city economy that we want. Where does the funding come to pay for it? New fees, new taxes? Could be, but you know we're not looking about you know, setting a new tax to get people from A to B. A lot of it would be privately derived, right? So you know, a company would come in and say, just like a new airline comes to the Rochester or the Monroe County Airport, right? You know, we we look at uh, you know consumers have choices they can make if they want to get down to Florida on a direct flight, right? They have that way to do that. But there's got to be some public expenditure. Sure, here. sure, of course. But you know that again, the idea is. Where those public transit dollars go towards? We we put a lot of money, millions and millions and millions of dollars into public transit. Uh, what I want to make sure is Upstate gets our fair share. So whether we're building roads and bridges, whether we're building out um, more uh, infrastructure for for buses, whether we're talking about some of this new form of technology like passenger rail and VTOLs, I want to make sure that Upstate gets the same opportunities as our friends and neighbors in New York City.
Is there a legislative appetite for this among your colleagues? I think so. I mean, there, there was a lot of uh, interest in the passenger rail hearing that we had a couple of weeks ago. I want to shout out my good friend, Senator Kennedy, who chairs the Transportation Committee. Um, he he's, represents Buffalo. So he's been leading on this issue for many years. I think that we have a renewed interest, especially as it relates to our hitting our climate goals. All right, Ron in East Rochester wants to weigh in on this. Hi, Ron. Go ahead. Hi, how you doing? Uh, regarding uh, the uh, the high-speed rail concept uh, and the need for a third or a new additional track to uh, support that uh, high-speed rail, uh, I just want to point out that originally the New York Central, uh, which ran from New York City all the way to Chicago, uh, from up the Hudson Valley to Albany, up through the Mohawk Valley, through Rochester and Buffalo, was four tracks, which have since been uh, reduced to two. But those other two tracks, the right-of-way, is now a service road for uh, construction of, uh, you know, maintenance of way on the, on the tracks. So it wouldn't require any additional purchase of land to add a third track for high-speed rail. Ron, how do you know all of this? Uh, I'm a railroad nut, for one thing. <laughs> uh, have uh, I seen you I at the Railroad at, Museum with my son? <laughs> <laughs> and I worked for uh, I worked for the Penn Central on the uh, wow. on a track crew while I was in college. Wow. Well, so what do you think, Senator? Well, first of all, Ron, give us a call at the office so we can put our, <laughs> so we can put our heads together. Um, you know, you can always you can always reach us. But I, I would say that you know the key the key part for me is that um, where there's a will, there's a way, and I think we have you know. Folks who know me know, well know that I, uh, I've i got lots of talents, but one of my best talents is I know how to count votes. we got a lot of upstate representatives in state government, whether we're talking about the state assembly or state senate. And there's a lot of interest among my peers in upstate cities uh, to think about and reimagine how transit can connect our regional economies. Let's not have it be about Rochester versus Buffalo or Buffalo versus Syracuse or this company came to one region and not the other. That's the old way of thinking. It's what's collaborative. Let's share workforce talent. Let's make sure that people who are going to U of R, RIT or Nazareth or Hobart William Smith, that they're staying in our communities. And if we do that and connect people through transit, I think we can have a much, much more tighter and robust upstate economy. Ron, feel free to email me at edawson at wxxi.org more of the history and that information. I'd like to read more because it it really deserves a separate conversation. But I will say the senator invoking high-speed rail has flooded the email inbox with this. (laughs) David in Pittsburgh says if airline subsidies were diverted to train subsidies, we'd have high-speed rail in a heartbeat. I don't know the math on that. Is that possibly true? I, I don't either. But again, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who are very interested and, and have, the, have the opportunity to go to other countries or other parts of the country where they're seeing this work. Uh, and I think this again, I think it's right there in front of us. And, and again, we've been talking about it for years. I think one difference between uh, now and, and 20 years ago when, when folks like Louise were speaking about it is that the younger generation of our workforce is looking for this. This is a value that they have. So they're moving to areas and choosing to work in communities that have access to better mass transit, whether we're talking about buses or trains. Um, that's something that is a really a, a workforce attraction strategy. And so, again, if upstate New York and our upstate cities want to be more competitive with other states, this is one way that we can do that. Well, Dallas says... 
aren't a whole bunch of our bridges rated poor, but that's dull compared to flying cars and trains. <laughs> well, listen, I think you don't have to. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, I fully agree that we need more money, more capital dollars to fix our roads and bridges. Um, this governor did invest a record amount in uh, the Finger Lakes region specifically for some of those improvements. I want to see more, of course. Uh, but again, it's not about, you know, if you invest in trains and you have to close up the airport. <laughs> or if you want to put more RTS buses on the road, then that means that we have to give up uh, something else. It's really about making sure that if, if transit's going to become a priority for upstate New York, then let's do it right. And Jillian says the place to start with solving our transit system would be to get rid of Amtrak. It's probably one of the worst-run systems I've encountered, and I use it a lot. The lack of consistency in operations is astounding. Cancellations, lateness, fares, merry-go-round. I, Jillian, I haven't ridden Amtrak in a number of years, but I always enjoyed it when I did. I just never felt like I could count on getting somewhere on time. As long as it was a leisurely trip, I felt pretty good about it. But you never know if you're going to be behind freight, and all of a sudden mm. you're stopping and you don't know why. So that frustration, I don't know if that's Amtrak's fault. I don't. I, I wouldn't know where to place that blame, but Jillian's frustrated, so... She wants to see a difference. Noted, noted in that. But, you know, again, some of these uh, other states that have accessed these dollars have gone with different systems other than Amtrak. Again, that's a little bit beyond my expertise. I, I will say this. There is not, for, for, for mass transit, whether we're talking about buses or trains or planes, um, you know, uh, it's not a for lack of interest. Um, it's for convenience factors, like you just said about Amtrak. It's also for, for busing and upstate transit. Uh, I want to see more resources. The governor put in 5%, an increase uh, in her budget. We need to be 15%. And here's what that would look like in Rochester. People don't take uh, RTS because it's they don't feel safe or they don't like the experience. No, actually quite the opposite. They actually have a very good experience uh, with our drivers and our buses and RTS. It's the frequency of the routes, right? We If you miss the bus in Rochester, you may have to wait a long time to get the next bus. But if we came every 15 or 20 minutes by putting more buses on the roads and going down the most popular routes, in fact, right down Lake Avenue is one of the most popular routes we can have, right? That's how we change and the utilization and increase ridership on RTS. But we need the resources to do that, and this state budget can do that. All right, come back sometime and talk high-speed rail. Happy to do that. Um, let, let's work through. we got a lot to talk about in the last 10 minutes here. I want to talk about some of the legislation you want to see. Empire State Child Tax Credit. Tell us about it. We've talked a lot about this as a community. We know what works, and we learned this through the pandemic. When the federal government invested and increased the child tax credit during the pandemic, we brought hundreds and hundreds of families out of poverty by giving them more resources. So we know that in New York State, we've done some good work. Last year in the state budget, I was very proud to push an expansion of the child tax credit for children under the age of four. Can you believe in New York State for years, we didn't offer a child tax credit to people who had newborns? I mean, that's crazy. So we expanded it for uh, for eligibility for children under the age of four. Now we actually need to increase the benefit. So my legislation would expand the Empire State Child Tax Credit to do an increase so that children under the age of four would go uh, to $1,000 per child and children over the age of four would go to 500 If we did $500 per child, uh, if we made that change to by investing in children, uh, we know locally here in Monroe County about 20,000 children would be eligible for this credit 
Uh, and the increase would benefit about 45,000 children and lift about 2,400 kids out of the poverty across Monroe County. That's not just city of Rochester. That's in our suburban towns as well. So that would make a real difference in changing the lives for working families in Rochester. And so we're going to try to push that uh, in the state budget. We did a little bit of it last year. The feds are doing some, uh, some of it this year. But we want to look at the, the whole benefits package for children. The Equity and Leave Act. This is a big issue, and you might not know about it unless you've had to experience temporary disability payments. I, I always make the joke that we haven't changed the benefit of $170 per week for those who are hurt and cannot work uh, since Taylor Swift was born in 1989. It's been a while. <laughs> so we need to modernize our temporary disability payment. Um, you know, We did a lot of work around paid family leave. That's great. That benefit is now hovering around the, the thousand, a little plus more uh, per week. Um, we need to do the same to modernize our uh, disability leave. And so when we do that, um, we know that individuals who cannot get to work for a number of reasons, it's all medically prescribed, right? You can't just say that you can't work. They have to have a medical reason for not uh, going to work. Um, they're not going to be out on the streets. Who can survive on $170 per week? Um, and that, by the way, who's going to pay for that? Not the state government. Who pays for that? It's, it's split between the employer and the employee. Uh, it's a it's a it's a payment mechanism. So it can't happen all at once. We have to allow our businesses, especially our smaller businesses, to be able to prepare for it. So over a period of years, we modernize our temporary disability and go up uh, to where it should be. That's in line with paid family leave. Uh, and you also are emphasizing the first-time homebuyer tax savings program. Tell us about it. This is huge for upstate New York, especially in upstate cities like Rochester, which have a number of houses available but now unfortunately are abandoned or emptied or what have you. Um, we have to think about creative ways to get people into home ownership if that's something that they're looking to do. Um, so the, the long story short is let's create a tax savings program uh, that would allow people to put money away every year to pay for a home, the for first-time home buyers. So whether they're in the city of Rochester, the town of Grays, town of Henrietta, uh, if they want to purchase a home one day, then they should be able to put money aside, just like you're saving for your kid's college, uh, and, and do so tax-free. So we would create legislation, or we have legislation that would create a, a program similar to 529s, if you're familiar with that, so that you can put money away every year uh, based on the size of your household, it would depend, um, and it would be for closing costs, uh, deposits, um, so that when you're ready to move into that first-time home, if that's something that you're working towards, you actually have the funds to do so, and you're not paying taxes on it uh, while you're collecting it and building that equity. Are you can. Are you concerned when you see, you know, the city of Rochester just had its reassessment, highest reassessment ever, at least in the modern decades they've been measuring it, upwards of six, uh, around 68% the average home assessed upward. And um, again, it's a lot of math involved, but it may make it harder for first-time home buyers. Are, are you concerned about that? I am concerned about it. In fact, I thought that was a really interesting program. I listened to it twice because it took me twice I, to I, understand that uh, all the math both, that, went in, <laughs> that went into it. Uh, but I, I will, t I will tell you this. Um, you know, again, we have a lot of homes that are sitting empty. All you have to do is drive through parts of my district in Northwest Rochester or along uh, the Clinton corridor and Northeast Rochester. You see all these houses just boarded up and vacant. Um, what if there was a way, working with our local government partners in the city and the county, that we were fixing up, the, we're creating jobs, fixing up these homes, 
uh, and then incentivizing people to to save their resources and to then move into these homes because we know when home ownership happens in neighborhoods, it, it, there's a pride of ownership. Uh, there's uh, you know neighborhood stabilization. Uh, it's it's a win 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 win. Um, a lot of these uh, homes uh, could be purchased by land banks, which I support, uh, and uh, then could be we could avoid that kind of huge cost increase. I think our market's going to going to level out, but let's give people the planning tools and the financial resources to be able to take advantage of our housing market. Last few minutes with Senator Cooney, and I wanted to mention something that the senator has worked on, and we recently spoke with an organization known as Bloom about um, legalized marijuana, equitable rollout of a program that is designed, at least uh, it has been ostensibly designed to make sure that the, the people who are involved with it on the business side um, that it's equitable, that everyone has a chance, that there are people in the legacy market have a chance. And for the first time on this, I have to say they were very optimistic that it's actually happening the right way. So what's happening this year? What can we expect this year and how do you assess it? So we've been working on uh, recreational adult use cannabis for years now. It's coming up on the three-year mark since yeah. it was legalized right. in the state of New York. Um, and now we're at the licensing stage. So now we're trying to get these licenses out the doors so that we can open retail dispensaries here in the Finger Lakes region. We have two right now, actually both in Henrietta. Rise just opened up by a Greater Crusher Marketplace Mall. And then in, uh, in the uh, Genesee Market, we have um, MJ Dispensary. Um, so that's only two. It's, uh, we have to do a lot more than that. Um, what I have been pushing our friends at the Office of Cannabis Management to do is to prioritize those businesses that are ready to open. They have real estate already secured. Uh, maybe they've started to hire their workforce. They have relationships with vendors. They have the, the capitalization to be able to do build-outs. Um, so let's make sure that those individuals can open up their stores as fast as possible. What we want to do uh, is to make sure that uh, – those who do want to purchase legal cannabis are doing so and purchasing safe products. This is a public safety issue for me uh, because a lot of the stores uh, you know, who are selling cannabis in Rochester right now are selling um, – uh, cannabis in a, in a way that's uh, not safe. There, it's an illicit product. Um, it's not been tested. It's not been tracked. Uh, and we don't want people purchasing product that they think is safe and then having a bad experience with it. Um, so we want to open more legal stores as fast as possible. Is that going to happen this year? I think so. We're really pushing it. They have the resources to do so. Now we just have to you know, make sure that every uh, month when they have their cannabis control board meeting that we have more Rochester licensees uh, being considered. Uh, I will also say that we also need to empower our local governments, whether they're town governments or city governments, village governments, to be able to do enforcement against the illicit operators. This is something that we've been talking about over the past year and a half. Um, the governor in her budget has proposed what we call Article 7 or policy language um, to enable local governments, local law enforcement, so it could be the sheriff uh, or Rochester Police Department, to actually go in and padlock these illegal stores. Oh, wow. Interesting. So more on that to come, but we gotta, we got to make sure that we do that to keep people safe. But you'd be surprised if we're sitting here a year from now and we haven't seen a significant amount of new... I would be. The, the momentum is there, and it's just at the beginning. Thank you for being here as always. Glad to be here. State Senator Jeremy Cooney from District Number 56, continuing our series of conversations with elected state leaders about... Business in front of the state right now. More connections coming up in a moment.